Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service and a Genocide Studies scholar. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Natasha Zaretsky about Acts of Repair, Justice, Truth, and the Politics of Memory in Argentina, recently published by Rutgers University Press in December of 2020. Natasha, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And uh, can you start us off by telling our listeners a bit about yourself and how you became interested in transitional justice in Argentina? Of course. Um, So I'm a cultural anthropologist, um, which means that I study people and how they make sense of the world and their place in it. Um, And I became interested in anthropology um, very much because of my own personal history um, in terms of being born in the former Soviet Union and my own family's history there in relation to surviving the Holocaust and World War II, um, which led me to my first questions about how people can survive periods of tremendous trauma and violence and also find a way to rebuild their worlds. Um, This later influenced much of my academic work. Um, When I was an undergraduate, I started doing, um, I was an anthropology major and started doing ethnographic research in memory and belonging for migrant communities. And before I went to graduate school, I worked at Human Rights Watch um, in their Europe and Central Asia division. And that's when um, I first had firsthand experience um, learning about the value of advocacy for an NGO um, and thinking about how people's lived experiences through their testimonies can play a powerful powerful role in their struggles for establishing human rights. Um, But as um, I was working there, I also found that uh, what I was really most inspired to focus on in my own work was thinking about what happens after someone gives their testimony um, and how the legacies of violence that they've lived through continue to impact their lives and their communities and their practices. Um, And this is what ultimately led me to thinking about memory and belonging in relation to transitional justice. And Argentina became the place where I wanted to do my research research 
because of its particular history in relation to human rights. Um, as some of your listeners may know, Argentina um, has the largest Jewish community in Latin America, including a large number of Holocaust survivors. Um, but it also was a refuge for Nazis after World War II, perhaps most famously Adolf Eichmann. Um, and later on, in, from 1976 to 1983, there was a brutal military dictatorship, also known as the Dirty War, which led to an estimated 30,000 people disappeared and killed. And then in the 1990s, there were also terrorist attacks that targeted the Argentine Jewish Mutual Aid Society. So because of this history, there's a tremendous um, uh, legacy of different periods of violence, but also it inspired a lot of social movements, such as the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo and other groups that formed to fight for memory and human rights. And that's what ultimately led me to look at Argentina as the place where I wanted to do my research. Thank you, Natasha. And you've uh, begun to address this a little bit. Um, so thank you for some of the background there. But can you provide some additional contextual background uh, for the protests that animated the streets of Buenos Aires in May of 2017 and connect these protests to the broader landscape of political violence and the justice movements in Argentina? Absolutely. Um, so um, in May of 2017, those protests were interesting to me because they were a moment that represented um, a possible turning back of many of the advances in relation to the human rights crimes of the dictatorship. Um, and, you know, just to give some context about that, um, you know, from 1976 to 1983 um, in Argentina, there was a military dictatorship um, that essentially targeted anyone who they perceived to be, quote unquote, subversive to their idea of national order. Um, and so many of the people that they were targeting were um, involved in different social justice struggles and movements. Um, and the victims um, were kidnapped, tortured, detained, um, and disappeared. Um, and that um, led to an estimated 30,000 people were affected by this. Um, and uh, in after the end of the dictatorship, uh, democracy came back to Argentina, and there was a hope that people had for the rule of law returning. Um, and there was an important truth commission, uh, the CONADEP, um, that was one of the very first truth commissions um, in Latin America and in the world. So it was a very important moment in transitional justice. Um, it published a report called Nunca Mas, Never Again, um, which was a landmark publication there. There, um, which systematically established the human rights crimes that were committed. And yet, um, several years after this landmark report um, came out, um, impunity law, amnesty laws um, were put into place that essentially allowed the perpetrators to walk very freely in the streets of Buenos Aires and Argentina and not be held accountable for their crimes. Um, so the power of memory in the 1990s um, was uh, everywhere in Argentina because of the profound impunity that um, that could be found throughout the streets where people who were torturers were living their life freely without any kind of accountability. And um, 
because of that, uh, human rights movements and social movements were very important um, in calling for memory and calling for justice. Um, now, in the early 2000s, those amnesty laws were overturned, so human rights trials could begin again. Um, and so um, there, there have been a large number of human rights trials that have taken place. But then in 2017, um, what happened, just to get back to your first question about those protests, the reason why there were protests was because there was a moment when uh, there was an introduction of something called the two for one where essentially um, what was on the table was the possibility that um, that uh, those that the crimes of the dirty war would not be um, counted in the same way it would make it possible for perpetrators of crimes against humanity to receive reduced sentences and this would for many of the activists they felt that this would endanger the nation's historical legacy and the accountability that they hoped um, would be accomplished through uh, the justice process that had uh, been happening. So uh, these were protests that were happening in the streets that also turned very much to the key symbols from the human rights movement, such as the white scarves that are worn by the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, whose children were disappeared. And it was this mass wave of protests um, that symbolically was very important. Um, and in response, um, eventually, um, the government did pass a bill that prohibited the application of this two-for-one law to perpetrators of crimes against humanity. Um, but this call in the streets in May of 2017 um, just represented for me um, the significance of memory in relation to justice in Argentina and how through such manifestations and protests related to cultural memory, Argentines are able to both um, perform and embody a kind of um, agency and citizenship, um, while also really having a powerful collective voice in the face of a possible moment of turning back on the forms of justice that were already put into place. Um, so um, that's that's why I began my book with these protests, because of what they represented and thinking about the power of the people's voices in relation to, um, to, to justice in our Argentina. Um, and of course, this also connected to a much bigger history of uh, social movements in the streets of Argentina as a way of protesting human rights abuses. And has the, the state of Argentina been um, you know, pretty open to, to researchers and scholars coming in? Uh, I, partly I asked because uh, you know, about a year ago, I interviewed Eva um, Van Rokel for her book on uh, called Phenomenal Justice, which was also, you know, on Argentina. Um, so has the government been, been welcoming of these efforts to um, document and, um, and research the justice mechanisms? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I feel like there, um, it depends on the um, administration and certainly under starting with uh, President Mr. Kirchner, um, there was a huge support for anything related to human rights. And those were also the years when um, it was when when there were a lot of other changes, including uh, the ESMA, which is one of the torture sites, um, becoming an official site of memory called the ex-ESMA um, and the Park of Memory being established. Um, and March 24th, which is the day of the military coup when the dictatorship came into power, um, is now a national day for commemorating um, that history. So there are a lot of ways in which the political administration is very supportive of any efforts related to human rights. So, um, so for me personally, as a researcher, I never experienced any kind of pushback or issues related to doing 
this kind of research, and also because um, these memory movements are such um, such an established space within the landscape of democracy in Argentina, meaning that um, they're a very established part of of what is understood as the norm in civil society in Argentina. So that has not been an experience um, for me, and in relation to a lot of my research also focuses on the aftermath of the 1994 AMIA bombing and the social movements that formed in response to that. Um, and that's been also interesting because in that case, um, there uh, there are trials that, that have happened, but there isn't justice that has been established. But most, many, many of the administrations in Argentina have been very, um, have, have, um, have understood their role in relation to that and been a part of these different justice mechanisms. So the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, for instance, decree that Argentina has failed to provide justice in the case of the AMIA. Um, and there are always ways in which the activists are and the social movements are trying to to find more more justice in in that case. Um, so but the the kind of pushback and the challenges from the human rights community is something that is expected from the part of the government. So it, it isn't anything that that I've ever experienced any kind of challenges with in my own work. That's good. Um... And uh, you know, you've you mentioned a couple of instances now um, in, in your previous answers, um, but uh, you know, in your book, you do describe multiple instances of genocide. Um, can you um, talk briefly about each of those? And then, um, you know, I know that you're um, working at the center, um, you know, that Alex Hinton directs at, at Rutgers University. Um, you know, in his genocide studies canon, Argentina is located uh, in the periphery of cases, and I think. That may even be an update from the first instance of the um, of the genocide studies canon um, from that. Uh, well, anyway, uh, one step from what, uh, what <laughs> one step uh, from what Hinton labels as forgotten cases. Um, you know, is genocide in Argentina uh, contestable? Um, and it seems like it's a, it's a more recent use of the term genocide to apply to uh, events in Argentina, and maybe it wasn't um, being um, you know used before. Yeah, uh, thank you for that question, because I think it raises a lot of really important themes in relation to thinking about the way that we even use narrative um, to, to, to find some form of understanding in relation to violence. Um, so when I talk about multiple instances of genocide in terms of the, um, the, the people that I work with in Argentina, um, referencing two in particular. Um, so one is the Holocaust. Um, as I mentioned at the start, um, since Argentina has the largest Jewish community in Latin America, it also ended up having many Holocaust survivors who emigrated there, um, and now their children and grandchildren live there. Um, so that's a very important part of the history, along with the fact that many Nazis like Eichmann also emigrated to Argentina. So that's a, a, a very complicated part of the history. Um, so the question of how to um, move forward and find a way um, to have meaning in your life again after having survived um, the Holocaust is very much a big question um, in Argentina, especially because um, in the early years, um, there were quotas that limited the number of Jews who could emigrate to Argentina um, after World War II. So many who did migrate there and the up using falsified documents to be able to enter. Um, so, so it's a very complicated history in terms of the reception and welcoming of Holocaust survivors in Argentina. And, and that's another part of what I write about in the book. 
Um, and of course, the Holocaust is a very um, accepted um, part of the genocide canon. It's understood as a paradigmatic case, of course. Um, now, the 1976 to 1983 military dictatorship, which is the second genocide, which I'm referring to, as you said, um, there are questions related to whether or not um, it, how it fits into the genocide canon, whether it's a peripheral case, um, and whether it's a contested case. Um, so I will speak a little bit more about that because um, most of your listeners are familiar with the Holocaust, I'm sure. Um, so in Argentina, what happened during the dictatorship um, was clearly constituted terrorism and political repression. Um, and, you know, it was the attempt by the military junta in power to annihilate a group of people that they had labeled to be subversive to their idea of a Western and Christian national order. Um, so um, it, they used torture, um, they killed people, all who they understood to be subversive to that order. Um, and of course, you know, it may seem if we understand genocide only in terms of racial or ethnic terms, um, that this wouldn't necessarily be considered genocide. Um, but if we look back to the original definition of genocide offered by Raphael Lemkin, who of course coined the term, um, in his first definition, he had proposed that genocide be defined as any intent to destroy in part or in whole a group based on ethnic, religious, national, or political reasons. And then the final version of the Genocide Convention, convention um, excise the category political from the legal definition, um, but that idea of wanting to destroy any group in part or in whole is really at the core of how to understand genocide. So in Argentina, um, at first, um, what happened during those years, during the dictatorship, was understood to be, um, was called a dirty war. Um, but then the framing shifted to reference it as um, as other forms of political repression and dictatorship, and certainly crimes against humanity. Um, and then more recently, um, it has been um, called a genocide, especially in Argentina. Um, so the very first mention of genocide actually um, could be found in the actual Nunca Mas report, the Never Again report um, that was published by the Truth Commission um, that was convened in 1984. Um, so that's the very first time that the word genocide appeared in relation to d- the disappearances that happened. Um, and then later, moving forward in time in 1998, um, the Spanish judge Baltazar Garzón uh, framed the state violence in Argentina as a genocide based on the intent to destroy a national group. Um, And then later, moving again forward in time, um, in the 2006 sentencing of Miguel Echecolatz, who was the former director of intelligence for the Buenos Aires Provincial Police, um, he was also um, accused of having perpetrated crimes against humanity in the context of genocide that took place in Argentina. So we see slowly over the years the concept of genocide being used in legal rulings um, and other ways of understanding what happened in those years. Um, and also on the ground in Argentina, that's that's what many activists and others are, are, are using to understand um, what happened. And of course, the Argentine scholar Daniel Firestein um, has also been very influential in arguing for genocide as a way to understand the violence in Argentina. 
Um, now, um, as you also asked, um, you know, is it contested? And it is contested. Um, and others, um, such as the anthropologist Tony Robin, for instance, um, you know, has written about questions about what it implies about collectivizing the guilt in these crimes um, and suggesting that society at large is more responsible as opposed to um, the, the, the individual perpetrators. And how this might affect the possibility for um, for how he described national reconciliation. Um, so I think for me as an anthropologist, um, what I'm interested in is how my subjects are defining things and what terms and concepts they're using to frame their understanding of the world. Um, so for me, um, the very fact that there are these contestations over how to understand what happened and how to use the word genocide in relation to that. Um, is very interesting ethnographically. So what I do in my own work is follow the way that people are talking about this and how the changes and shifts actually reflect other things in society in relation to how they make sense of violence and what it means for their own way of imagining their place in in the world, including in relation to um, to the history of genocide um, that has happened elsewhere as well. Um, and I think in terms of thinking about where it fits into the canon as well, you know, for me, um, there's going to be a new edition of the book Centuries of Genocide, edited by Samuel Totten. Um, and that in that edition, I have a chapter on Argentina. So it'll be interesting to see how the very ways in which academic publications might also have any kind of um, influence on the way that we perceive and understand um, genocide um, in the world. Um, But to me, the fact that it's contested um, makes it something that is interesting for me to study as well in terms of how my subjects are talking about it. It's it's all very interesting. Um, You know, and we'll get to um, your your methodological approach to your research in a moment. But I was just thinking, you know, what you said about the... um, you know, the omission of political groups from the adopted text. Uh, of course, at, in national proceedings, you know, states are not, even the, at the state level, they're not necessarily limited to um, the international legal definition as they uh, incorporate into their own um, legislation. Um, and so there have been cases where, um, you know, when states have ratified or ceded, uh, ceded to the Genocide Convention have um, included political groups in their definition, even if the international um, definition is still uh, limited to racial, ethnic, uh, religious, um, and national groups. Sorry, my mind is not uh, so sharp right now. <laughs> no, that's and I think that's really interesting because I think there's always this tension and relationship between what's happening juridically and within legal spheres and what's happening um, in communities themselves and how they're making sense of these concepts on the ground. And so um, that's something that that I'm focused on as well because of also thinking about the power of language and we see you know for instance you know in even in thinking about that concept of subversive and what it really meant in latin america in the 1960s and 1970s um, much of that stemmed from the national security doctrine um, in the united states um, which was about rooting about out communism in the western hemisphere so you know here you have this idea of order and subversion that then had this profound effect in terms of all of these policies and practices 
that led to authoritarian rule and dictatorships um, and tremendous violence throughout Latin America. So, um, so that sense of how language matters, you know, in relation to both how it's legally defined and applied through policy, but also how people make sense of the world themselves in relation to that language is something that is always very interesting for me as an anthropologist. You know, it also makes me think of, um, you know, I did a bit of research into the preparatory work for the genocide convention and, you know, the Soviet Union, one of the reasons it argued that political groups needed to be uh, omitted was that states have a right to um, respond to a domestic insurgency without being accused of genocide in doing so. And of course, uh, some of the counter arguments included, well, you can respond to that without committing genocide. Um, so you don't need to exclude political groups you just need to not indiscriminately kill people um you know because of their political beliefs so um but uh, you're welcome to comment on that as well but i also wanted to shift us to to your methods um and so um does ethnographic research have the potential to reveal information that other approaches might not be able to and uh, a couple other related questions were there any ethical concerns in conducting your research and also, were there any safety or security concerns for you personally and uh, for the individuals you spoke to? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, so, you know, in terms of my research as an anthropologist, uh, what fieldwork means to me is in-depth interviews and participant observations, which means some of it seems like very much like what a historian doing oral histories um, or others might be doing in terms of in-depth structured life history interviews of activists, family members of victims and other survivors um, that were a part of my research and that I write about. And thinking about people's lived experiences um, was central to my project. So for me, those interviews were very key. Um, and in my work, um, I conducted over uh, 122 in-depth interviews. So that was a very big part of my material. Um, but participant observation um, was also very important, which means that I participated in and observed various protests of key social movements. So one of those movements was Memoria Activa, which means active memory, which formed after the 1994 AMIA bombing. Um, and just to give a little bit of context for that. Um, this is an attack that happened on July 18th, 1994, um, that targeted the Argentine Jewish Mutual Aid Society, killed 85 people and wounded hundreds, and is considered the worst terrorist attack in Argentina's history, as well as one of the worst anti-Semitic attacks in the Western Hemisphere. Um, so the lack of justice after this attack and the problematic investigation um, inspired family members of victims and concerned citizens to gather together into various social movements, and it's a lot of what I write about in my book as well. Um, so one of these groups, Memoria Activa, for instance, would every Monday morning, which is the day and time when the bombing happened, stand in front of the high courts of Argentina um, in the plaza that's the, the, the square that's facing um, those courts called the Plaza Lavalle. And they would bring a shofar, which is a ram's horn that's traditionally used um, in Jewish rituals. 
religious rituals um, and blow it in front of the high courts and then invite people to give their testimony about how they've experienced impunity in Argentina. Um, so this was happening every Monday morning. So part of my field work was to go every Monday morning and to stand in the crowd and to listen to the testimonies and to talk to people, but then also to go to the coffee shops with them afterwards and to be a part of their daily life. Um, in addition to the interviews that I was do doing that were more structured. Um, so that's the way that I did my field work with Memoria Activa um, and with other social movements that formed, including a group called Citizens of the Plaza, a group called Apemia, and I would also go to the protests of the Madres of the Plaza de Mayo and to Escraches, which are a kind of street protest organized by children of the disappeared, a group called Hijos. Um, so that was a very big part of my research. And the reason why um, that's important is that um, in the ethnographic method, it's not just about um, you know, having the testimony of people or having, you know, their words or transcribing from interviews. It's really also about observing how what they say connects to what they do and their practices, both in their rituals and in their daily lives. Um, and it's a much longer term engagement. So um, what it means to have done this research for over 10 years um, and to be returning always to Argentina over those years is that um, is that you're implicated in people's lives in different ways. And the idea is to try to understand the world from their perspective by going through their lives with them. So, um, and so it isn't about... Um, uh, only understanding what happened, but why it matters to them. And I think for looking at these questions that inspired me to go to Argentina in the first place, which were very much focused on how do individuals and communities survive periods of violence and collective trauma, um, and what are the legacies and traces of violence in their lives and their cultural practices, and how they can find meaning again after having survived um, human rights abuses, genocide, and other forms of political violence being there with them in their daily lives gave me insights into that process in a way that an interview would not on its own. Um, so for me, understanding uh, the pace of their lives, the more quiet moments were also very valuable for understanding the complexities of survival and, and allowed me to really understand um, what their lived experiences were, not just of what happened, um, but how they rebuilt their lives in the aftermath of what happened. Um, um, and then that also, however, leads into some ethical concerns because, you know, I never, I, even though I went to many protests, um, I never felt there was never any danger that I personally felt in being a part of these different protests because of the power of the community in which I was, um, in which I was during, during these different protests. But at the same time, because of the amount of time that I spend with people, um, there's a different level of familiarity um, that you find and the boundaries between research and friendship um, become a little complicated because there are moments when I may have experienced something um, that I found really meaningful in relation to my research, but I don't necessarily include that in my book um, because it's not something that I felt um, the person with whom I was sharing this time would have wanted me to include in the book. So in that sense, it's very different from if I were a journalist going to Argentina and doing this research where it was very clear um, 
you know, on the record, off the record, you know, anthropologists don't necessarily use those terms in the same way. Um, So, you know, that's where some of the ethical concerns come in. Um, And of course, you know, uh, you know, for me, the way that I address those concerns was before I publish anything, I share it with the people I'm writing about, and then I let them participate in in um, letting me know if something should or shouldn't be included. And I'm also very aware of whatever I write may also have an impact on their actual struggles for justice. So if I write something about the internal workings of an organization, and that then has an effect on how they're perceived in terms of their advocacy work, um, that's something that is on my mind as I'm writing. So, um, so I'm constantly navigating those ethical concerns in terms of how to accurately but thoughtfully represent um, the experiences of the people I write about in a way that also um, won't do any harm to the advocacy work that they're they're doing. Um, and you know, in in anthropology, one of the the nice things about um, my discipline is that it's possible to also um, and in fact encouraged um, to be reflexive in your writing and to really think about these ethical questions as a part of your process of understanding your um, your work as well. So it's something that is very much a part of how we understand the production of knowledge um, in our field. Um, So for me, um, in thinking about the, to go to your question about the particular insights that ethnography offers, um, I do think that um, all of the ways in which I was able to think about the power of um, these small moments in people's lives, how they carved out possibilities for agency in the face of so much injustice and impunity and trauma, um, and in thinking about the complexities of how they navigated um, what I call all these liminal spaces. And of course, that concept of liminality comes from anthropology as well. You know, to me, um, that that all has to do with the ethnographic method for me, the fact that I was able to stand there with them and observe them and really get a sense of their daily lives um, through days and days and days and years of being with them um, gave me the ability to understand the process of survival as not being linear, um, but as something that comes and goes. And so they're constantly in this kind of liminal state where they might never arrive at the kind of justice or truth that they so desire in many cases, and yet really thinking about what keeps them going, despite the fact that they might never find justice, or they might never find closure in relation to their trauma. Um, that That's something that I think um, the ethnographic method really helped me understand and be able to, to chronicle in their lived experiences in my book. Thank you. And you know what you what you said there definitely connects with uh, something else that I was interested in, which is, um, you know, if the struggle is is the struggle for repair important, um, despite the possibility that it does not um, or that it remains unfulfilled or the realization of a repair remains unfulfilled. Um, can you talk about the performative elements of protest and preserving the memory of political violence and genocide in Argentina, as well as what it means to disrupt the temporal order? Um, and I have another question just related, uh, not really related to that, but to what you said previously uh, about sharing, um, you know, with the individuals that you um, interviewed and that you developed friendships with. Um, in addition to, you know, the question about the um, performative aspects of protest, 
are, have you gotten um, interest in some of the people you interviewed or organizations that you connected with in reading your finished product? And um, are you able to share your book with them? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I mean, I think um, ethically also being able to share your work with the people that you work with is very important um, to me. Um, and one of the very the very first official book talk that I actually gave was just last month in Spanish over Zoom to the University of Buenos Aires. So, um, so you know, for me, I feel very much, um, I feel a great responsibility to be able to share my work with the people um, who are a part of it. Um, so I have been able to share it with them. And there are archives also that I consulted as a part of my work, although that wasn't a, a big part of my research. Uh, but there's an archive at the AMIA, for instance, um, called the Mark Turkov Center that has been in dialogue with me about possibly having some material to include in their archives. So after I'm, I said, after I'm finished my book, I'm going to talk to all the people who I interviewed about that possibility. So all of their words and experiences can be a part of an archive that others in Argentina can also consult. Um, and in fact, another archive that I consulted, Memoria Abierta, which means open memory, um, which has testimonies chronicling uh, the experiences related to the dictatorship. Um, you know, part of their mission also has to do with the memory and the aftermath of the dictatorship and, and, and thinking about it as not just how a historical archive can have a really important place in reinforcing and solidifying democracy and civil society. So for me, um, sharing my work um, with the individuals with whom I worked has always been very important. Um, the issue is that the book is in English and um, and they speak Spanish. Um, so um, I share pieces of it with them. Um, and then the hope is that this work will be translated into Spanish in the future. Um, so that's definitely a very important part um, of what I'm doing. Um, and then in terms of thinking about um, that question of the struggle for repair, even if the realization of repair remains unfulfilled, you know, that was a very big question for me because, you know, when I first went to Argentina, which was in the year 2001, so 20 years ago, um, and I saw people protesting, I thought, wow, how is it that decades after this dictatorship, people are still demanding justice? Or how is it that years after this bombing, people are still demanding justice? And this is something that has continued 20 now 20 years later people are still um, demanding justice and memory in different ways of course because of the pandemic they can't oh, gather in the streets as easily as they used to but you could see the ways in which the practices of the mothers for example the mothers of the blessed majo who in 1977 stood in the central square of argentina the plaza de majo which faces the presidential palace it's a very important symbolic site there and they just stood with simple white scarves over their heads where they inscribed their children's names and challenged the idea that their children were simply disappeared and must have gone missing and demanded to know what happened to them. Um, and so that practice, which seems so you know, simple just to stand there every Thursday afternoon, they would stand there and they continued doing that for years and years and years and years. Um, that became a very important way um, to not only fight for justice, but to also find a kind of agency that was also very important to their process of survival and recovery. 
So um, that's something that, um, in thinking about why the struggle for repair is really important, um, I really turned to the experiences of the people who I worked with. And for them, what really came through was this idea of agency as being really important. So, um, you know, one of the women who I work very closely with, Sofia Guterman, um, her daughter, her only child, Andrea, was killed in the 1994 Amiya bombing. Um, and and, you know, she has been a very important public speaker and she's written about her experiences um, and speaks a lot at various commemorative events and protests. Um, and, you know, she talks about, and this is how I titled my first chapter, um, what she felt like after finding her daughter's body when she was searching for it initially. And she says, um, you know, after you find it, you feel like at first you should have some peace for, for some kind of resolution. Um, but then she says, and I'll say this in Spanish to, to quote her directly, se da cuenta que empieza el vacío, you realize that the void, that the emptiness is only beginning. So what do you do in the face of that void or emptiness? Um, narrative has been a very important way of thinking about how people can survive trauma, and that has been an important way of thinking about how she moves forward. Um, but the value of telling your story is not to somehow... Um, find a way to resolve everything and just to move forward for the people I worked with. Um, but it was also a way for them to find a measure of agency um, in, in amidst the profound chaos and loss and pain that they were going through. Um, so for me, thinking about the value of these struggles for repair, be it through telling their stories or going to a protest or just standing at a protest and listening to the testimonies, um, all of that was important for their own sense of who they were as human beings and who they were as Argentine citizens and who they were in some cases as Jewish Argentine citizens. Um, and here again, I'll turn to some of the words from the people I worked with. Um, so one of the women who um, would go to every Monday morning protests and continue to stand there Monday after Monday after Monday for years um, is also someone who herself was tortured during the dictatorship. And her name is uh, Rebecca Sokolsky. Um, she goes by the name Tita. And um, when I asked her, um, so this was in 2013 when we connected, when I conducted this interview, why after so many years, you know, when there seems to be so little hope in the case of the Amiya bombing, why does she continue going back? Do you believe that there will be justice? And she said, no, here there will never be justice for this. Um, which then was curious to me that, you know, how is it that if you don't believe that there will be justice, that you continue going every Monday morning to fight for justice? Like, what does that mean? Um, and when I asked her, why do you still come to this process since you don't seem to have any faith or hope that any justice will come? What she said to me was that she needs to be there to reclaim justice. And I'm quoting her um, when she said, because the most important thing for a person is the ability to demand justice. Um, and we need to do whatever we can so that one day there might be justice here. Um, so for me, the value of these struggles for repair um, have to do with um, what it means to them as human beings to be able to demand justice, that that's central to how they understand their own subjectivity. 
And for me, there are moments of being in these public spaces and protesting, you know, it is about their own agency and subjectivity, as I said. So there's that personal level of repair, but there's also that collective level of repair and thinking about what it means for the public sphere. And that's where thinking about your question about the disruption of temporal order, um, you know, there was something that felt like for those who lost their family members to state violence or to impunity, you know, they felt that if time just marches on as if nothing happened, if the memory of their children or family members or fellow citizens just is erased and vanished, um, then there's another violence that comes from that. Um, So for them to stand every Thursday, as the mothers did in the Plaza de Mayo, or to stand every Monday as the members of Memoria Activa and later a group called Citizens of the Plaza would do every Monday morning, that act of standing there and disrupting time every week to return to the past violence and sustain that moment in the collective consciousness um, was a very profoundly important part of how they wanted to rebuild their world and try to repair the nation um, that was violently fractured by what happened both during the dictatorship and also during this bombing. Um, so, uh, so for me, that question of why is the struggle for repair important has very much to do both with um, the agency and subjectivity of the individuals, the people who are grappling with loss, um, with the citizens who may not have lost anyone, but who feel a profound loss because of the lack of justice in their nation, um, and also for civil society as a whole and what it means to try to build a democracy that is based on accountability and justice and the rule of law. Um, So to me, that is where the value of repair um, remains so important to the idea of what it means to be a citizen in Argentina. Thank you, Natasha. And this brings up the question, I think, of of listeners. Um, There there can be listeners uh, who are present in these protests um, who share uh, in the... um, you know, the loss of, of others present. There could be listeners that you mentioned who are there because of the lack of justice, but maybe did not have the same experience or family experience or community experience as others who are there in protest. Um, what is the importance of listeners? And, and is it also important that there be listeners um, who are neither um, family members of, of victims or survivors or who are there to support their call for justice? Is it important that there be listeners um, say from the government, from those who were actually um, maybe per, you know participated in um, the political violence, and, and is this also then where um, agency and activism and disruption comes into play? Um, and is there does impunity reign if there are not others there to mm-hmm. listen? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And, you know, and I think it really also goes to the heart of thinking about the value of transitional justice processes um, outside of what retributive justice can um, can achieve. Um, so thinking about what it means to have shared spaces of listening and recognition and acknowledgement, um, not just for those who are the survivors or who are family members of victims, but for other citizens, for the government, um, and also for others who might um, might have um, another role in relation to the violence. Um, 
you know, that becomes especially um, important in thinking about um, how to move forward, even in terms of new generations. Um, so, you know, so in thinking about who these listeners are, um, you know, I think, you know, part of this comes from trauma studies for me and thinking about how important narrative and testimony is um, for someone who has lived through a trauma in order to rebuild their sense of self and their relationship to the world. Um, but for that, you need a listener. And I've written about the importance of implicated listeners, um, which is the idea of someone, which I saw through my field work of, you know, having these, what happens in spaces where you're telling your story to someone who understands where you're coming from or who also shares or is implicated in that story in some way and the power of that. Um, and, you know, that, of course, you know, is something um, that also connects to, to Michael Rothberg's idea of implicated subjects. So, you know, that idea of being implicated in one another's lives and being responsible for one another in a way, I think is very important to many of the people who I work with. Um, now, in terms of thinking about who these listeners are, um, you know, it's it's very interesting because in the Jewish community in Argentina, for instance, after the Amia bombing, um, there was a, a moment in 1997, so this is three years after the bombing, and I write about this in my book, where a woman named Laura Ginsberg, who lost her husband in the attack, stood in front of the at the site of the bombing um and in front of a large crowd gathered um she accused the president uh, at the time menem carlos menem of complicity and responsibility in the problematic investigation that happened she accused him and she said Juacuso, um, like the jacuz um and she repeated that over and over to accuse different parts of the government and what they did um so you know that moment of a public challenge to the government like this was a a, a really important moment in the history of the Jewish community in relation to the government of Argentina. Um, but it also represented this idea of what it means to have um, the government actually be there at, in the position of someone listening um, to what you're going through. And then re in, in that case, they rejected what she was saying. It became a very complicated um, situation. But um, what it does show is the importance of having different interlocutors. Um, and, you know, for me, um, it's, it's, it's very complicated because, um, you know, in a way, um, you have sectors of civil society in Argentina that are challenging the government for more reforms and for more trials and for more justice. Um, but socially, so thinking about the social fabric, you know, I think about what it means for the next generation, for people who might be the children of the military who were involved, you know, in the dictatorship, for instance, um, and, you know, how they situate themselves in relation to this and where they find themselves in relation to this, you know, and that's something that is an ongoing open question, but one that I think will be very important for for the next generation in Argentina. Um, and I'll say from the perspective of um, those who have gone through um, the violence or who are family members of victims, um, for someone like Sofia Guterman, who I write about, whose daughter was killed in the AMIA bombing, um, for her having listeners 
is vital to everything she does. Um, because as she said to me, she fears that um, if people don't listen to her story or to her daughter's story, it would be as if, in her words, her daughter would have died again. Um, that once she is no longer remembered, um, that is a second kind of death for her. Um, so for her, having listeners who are engaged and who care about this, not because it happened to them, but because it happened in their nation and that it isn't just um, something that um, that you can't forget because it's a case that still um, has no justice despite two trials um, and no one has taken responsibility for it. So it's it's this, this case where um, it's important to have accountability um, in order to rebuild the fabric of their society and their, their democracy. And this, of course, is not something that is just specific to Argentina, but any nation that is rebuilding and thinking about how important accountability is, um, not just for the individuals involved, but collectively for the society as a whole. Um, so in, in that way, these listeners are incredibly important for the kind of accountability that I would argue is central to, to sustaining civil society and any democracy. Thank you, Natasha. And, and, and sites of memory also, um, you know, play a, um, a sort of a parallel or supporting role in this. Um, do do the sites of memory in Argentina have a single purpose, or does it depend on who is present at the site of memory? That you know, what purpose the the site of memory serves, and do these sites also, just as we need listeners, do these sites need people other than the victim survivors and their families to be present for them to serve particular purposes? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I think uh, sites of memory, I have a chapter devoted to that in my book. And, you know, thinking about these sites, there are many different sites of memory um, in Argentina and in Buenos Aires, and they are serving many different purposes always um, as any site of memory can and changes over time. Um, I'll talk about some of them in relation to the kind of value that they have um, for the victims and survivors and other citizens. Um, so one of the sites of memory that I write about is the Park of Memory, which is a site that's along the River Plate um, in Buenos Aires. Um, and this is a place where you have different monuments, including a very important um, monument to the victims of state terrorism, which is designed a little bit like the Vietnam War Memorial, um, which is a wall with all the names listed of those who were uh, persecuted and killed during the dictatorship. Um, and the reason why it's located there is because the river plate itself, that river, is also where um, death flights um, during the years of the dictatorship um, would take um, those people who they disappeared and tortured and then would drop their bodies into that river. Um, so, you know, this was, before it became an official site of memory, was still <clears throat> a site of memory for people in Argentina who knew very well what happened there during that history. So, you know, this is something that was a part of their history and was happening um, right in their city. Um, so that's something that 
having having there now as an officially recognized site of memory um, just gives it um, that kind of official recognition um, that many activists have wanted. Um, and when you go to this park of memory, what you see along the river are these signposts that are these, you know, yellow signs that you might see as almost traffic signs somewhere else. Um, and, you know, they I include some images of them in my book. Um, and what you notice is the way that they're situating visitors in space and time in the history of what happened. Um, so there's one sign, for example, that depicts multiple outlines of people along with the number 30,000, the estimated number of disappeared. Um, another sign um, just shows the profile of a woman who is pregnant, um, because many of um, those who were detained, if they were pregnant, um, they would give birth to their children. And then those children were um, were then um, adopted, quote unquote, adopted into military families and living under other names and identities. And the project of recuperating that identity is at the heart of the group, um, uh, grandmothers of the Plaza de Maggio, whose grandchildren were born in these torture centers and then given to military families. Um, so, you know, so that's another signpost that's there. And all these signs are there along the river plate to locate you both in time and in space that right here is where all of this was happening. Um, so for anyone who may not have known this history, being able to go there and walk along there and have this kind of embodied experience where they're physically standing there is a very important way for them to engage with that history and to think about what it means for their nation in that moment and also going forward. Um, you know, and it also for me allows me to see, um, going to these sites, how people engage with them in, you know, what I call these, you know, acts of repair. And I write about um, a friend who I accompanied to this place and, you know, she found the name of one of her friends who was killed during that time. And, you know, that day, um, the park was handing out these just plain white sheets of paper and a pencil. And so, you know, she just, you know, put that paper over the wall and just traced her friend's name um, onto that page. And it seems like a very small act. And it seems like compared to some of the other changes, like overturning the amnesty laws and everything else, like this is a very small act and small moment. Um, yet in those small moments, there's a lot of meaning for the individuals involved. And, you know, and those are those small moments that cumulatively build into a sense of um, agency and also a way of feeling like they can engage with this history in a way that makes it meaningful for them in the present as well. Um, so that's one of the sites of memory that I write about. Another site is a monument that exists in the Plaza Lavage, which is facing the high course of Argentina which was designed um, by the artist Mirta Kupfermink um, to commemorate the names of the 85 victims of the Amia bombing. And, you know, in our interview, she told me that, you know, she really designed it. It's shaped like the letter V, which is a kind of embrace towards justice. Um, and she used an Argentine material, a wood called quebracho, um, which she said she used it both for its durability and its capacity for change um, because she wanted it to actually show the passage of time. So it was a very deliberate part of her design. Um, and it's also out in the open. Um, so, you know, it, it shows the passage of time and also the ways in which weather and, you know, just um, other people touching it have um, 
have slowly eroded pieces of it, and yet it still stands. Um, and standing there also provides a point and anchor for groups to continue to gather. So, you know, in thinking about um, what it means for the people I work with, like they would go to this monument, um, you know, and there's a moment I write about it in my book about one of the people I work with, um, who I call Alberto, um, who was a very quiet man, but who would go there every single Monday, you know, and he would just stand there and just like taking his own, um, his own napkin, he would clean the plaque that's there to remove whatever dirt and pigeon droppings and other things may have gathered over time. And, you know, and in a way, those small moments and small acts are very powerful moments of citizenship for the people I work with, because it's the way that they show their care uh, for their own nation and for what the possibility of justice really means for them. Um, You know, and I also write about what it means for other people like a, a man named Benjamin Goose who would go to this space every single week as well. Um, and he took on the role of blowing the shofar and that sense of being able to continue demanding justice um, was profoundly important for them um, because the danger is always that not only will the past be forgotten, but that some of these moments of the past or commemorations can just become routine things that you do, but not ways in which you genuinely engage with the past. Um, and especially when the past is one that requires um, an ongoing struggle for justice. Um, And so having these sites of memory actually makes it possible for citizens to come to these sites and to find meaningful forms of engagement um, with that history and to make it their own through these embodied practices. Um, So those are just two examples of the sites of memory that I write about um, in the book. Very interesting. And, um, you know, in the, in the struggle for justice, uh, from your research, uh, did you find, um, that trauma, memory, narrative, sense of grievance and forgiveness are, are individualized by experience? And I'm thinking about this in, in the context of your, your book, but also the bigger picture, uh, for transitional justice, uh, is the realization of repair also at least somewhat individualized? And if so, what does this mean for for justice in informal and formal ways or mechanisms? Yeah, I think that's a really great question because I think it's, you know, it's really important to think about um, even the way that, you know, right now, for example, you know, there are different transitional justice processes throughout Latin America, be it opening of archives or truth commissions um, or other ways in which societies are trying to grapple with the past when retributive justice may not be possible in that moment. Um, but the CONADEF in Argentina, which was the commission that formed um, to systematically establish the, the crimes, uh, you know, that was very one of the very first instances of truth commission. So it was very much something that was, you know, that was developed locally there to address what happened in Argentina. So, you know, in thinking about that question of individualized um I'm also thinking about the tension between local and global as well. Um, and so, you know, for me, you know, there's a certain power in thinking about what local mechanisms and mechanisms that have a meaning and a value historically in terms of how um, justice is conceived and established, you know, that's really, really important so that it isn't just a 
performance of justice or something that's a top-down implementation of mechanisms, but something that is actually emerging from the stakeholders in a particular community or in a particular nation. And I think for me, where that becomes very clear, the importance of the local, the individualized, the cultural dimension of things, if you will, is in how powerful memory and testimony have become in Argentina so that even when, for instance, you know, trials, um, there are many trials that have happened since the overturning of the amnesty laws. Um, and in one of my chapters, I write about the what happens within these juridical spaces as far as memory processes. And I talk about dialogic memory in particular. And for me, um, what was really interesting is that, you know, so many of the movements in the 1990s advocating for memory had the end goal of trials and justice. That's what they wanted. They felt like it was important to sustain memory because they needed to have that as um, as a holding place for the justice that would come in the future. Um, and that's how transitional justice is also often conceived. Um, and yet, even when trials did happen, such as the ESMA trial, which was called the mega ESMA trial that uh, concluded in 2017, um, you know, which is a profoundly important trial in Argentina. Um, and yet within these spaces, the act of giving testimony, it had a juridical value, certainly as far as, you know, providing evidence that they needed in order to prosecute the perpetrators, but yet at the same time, there was a social dimension to that and that act of telling your story and having others listen to it, um, that also um, was very important to the kind of repair that I write about, um, which isn't only about finding justice and accountability, but also finding yourself again after having survived um, such a period of violence. And so in thinking about, you know, that question of um, the individualized nature of it, um, I think looking at the case of Argentina, will tell us something about um, the power of different cultural framings and the local dimension in understanding um, how to think about uh, the aftermath of violence and the pursuit of justice. Um, and that might manifest in different ways in different places. Um, but I think what it shows us is the power of thinking about local histories and cultural and, and cultural memory um, in in those local histories in relation to these processes of justice. And of course, when I think about the word culture, you know, it is a shared set of beliefs and practices, one of the very like basic definitions from anthropology, but you know, it's also something that changes and shifts over time. And I think that sense of being attuned to how current moments and not only the local landscape, but how the local connects to the global and, you know, how there are transnational dimensions to all these questions as well. I think that's also very important in thinking about, um, you know, how the cultures of justice and memory also change over time and change in Argentina. Um, and that's also even thinking about what we discussed earlier about the very idea of genocide as being used in Argentina. That's also something that, you know, is something that came up and changed over time. So, um, so being attuned to the possibility of change over time, I think is very important to even thinking about the individualized nature of this or the informal or formal ways in which this unfolds. Thank you, Natasha. And um, we are nearing the, the end of our discussion. But uh, before we conclude, I, I wanted to uh, ask you a final question and also share uh, an excerpt from your book, from your conclusion. 
And in it, you write, quote, acts of repair then may be inevitably liminal, but such liminality also allows for a transformation and agency I argue have become just as critical for personal and social recovery. Of course, Argentines may never arrive at the coherence they seek. They might remain in a state of perhaps perpetual transition, seeking truth or justice that may never materialize. You go on to say, quote, if liminality carries the possibility for insight and transformation, then through their testimonies, through their actos, through, I'm sorry, their monuments, their protests, through their acts of repair, Argentines can develop a kind of agency just as vital for their survival. And survival includes arriving at a, quote, bearable present, one in which they can hold on to the possibility for a better future, and through that act of imagination, reclaim the agency that makes liminality such a powerful space of repair. And when I read this, it, it elicited mixed feelings of hope and despair. Uh, hope came from imagination of what can be, while despair emanated from the possibility that the pursuit of truth and justice might remain perpetually in a liminal space. When you were doing your research, did you get the sense that Argentines tended to express either hope or despair, or was it something um, like both simultaneously? Yeah, thank you so much for your question and for, you know, taking such care with my words. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting, this relationship between hope and despair. And I think the tension is precisely between hope and despair is what really surprised me the most. Um, you know, when I went to Argentina for the first time, I really expected to find despair to find, you know, a sense of defeat almost in the face of so many years and decades of injustice and violence. Um, but I also found hope in all of these ways that were unexpected and surprising. And, you know, when they said that they knew that justice and truth truth would probably never be found, for instance, um, they still kept on pushing forward and still gesturing towards repair, um, which this desire for justice, this desire for repair um, was the way that they could carve out a place for themselves in the world. Um, so for me, the idea of things being neatly tied up or to find legal or personal closure or coherence um, really displayed its limits to me, um, you know, because it was clear that you know, they were never going to find justice in some cases, or if they even did find justice, that would never recover the loved ones that they had lost. Um, so the kind of trauma idea that by telling your story, you might be able to move forward or by finding justice, you know, then you can find a way forward. You know, that always felt limited to me in relation to the lived experiences of the people who I was working with in Argentina. Um, so, you know, in the end, um, you know, despite everything, they still continued telling their stories over and over again and continued protesting and continued commemorating, continued going to the site. Um, because there's something at the heart of this, I found, and this is where the hope comes in, of what it really means to be human about continuing to try to find justice or to try to find some kind of meaning again in their lives. Um, about needing to stand there shoulder to shoulder with others in your community, um, because you have to do that, as Rebecca Sokolsky told me um, in our interviews, because it is about her very human dignity, about what it means to be a human being, about her agency, about how she imagines herself as a human being, as a subject, as an Argentine citizen, as a Jewish Argentine citizen. And for me, there was a lot of hope in that um, that came through from their experiences that while they might not find justice, um, they could find some hope in who they are as human beings and the communities they've established 
and in knowing that um, they could, um, they still had that capacity to keep on trying to find justice, even if their government fails them, um, that they had the capacity as citizens and as a community to keep on pushing for it. Um, so in a sense, in a way, I feel like there might be a distinction that needs to be made between like a political despair and feeling a despair in your government in some way, um, but a continuing hope in civil society and who they are as a community. Um, and, you know, here it also speaks not just to the political questions, but also to very basic human questions about survival, which was also at the core of what led me to Argentina in the first place. And, you know, for me, I'm really thinking a lot about um, uh, the words of one of the people I worked very closely with, Jack Fuchs, um, who is a survivor of Auschwitz. Um, and I write about him throughout the book, but I also turn to his words in the conclusion. Um, and he reflects on his experience as a survivor and people looking at him as someone who almost was perhaps more than human or more than himself. Um, and he said to me, people don't know what they're capable of surviving, how much pain and how much suffering a person can go through. And then they ask, he continued, is it possible to live again and to feel again? Um, which to me was at the heart of so much of what I was trying to understand in Argentina. And then Jack continued in her interview. And after giving a moment to process the questions for me and for him, he answered himself that question of, is it possible to live again? And he said, apparently it is. Um, and so to me, you know, there is a sense of hope in that. Um, so even though there is a measure of political despair, I also feel like there's a tremendous amount of hope in these acts of repair um, that I found in Argentina. Thank you, Natasha. I could um, sort of feel uh, the hope in that and um, definitely better to end on a hopeful note rather than one of despair. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, is there any... Uh, Anything the audience um, might want to keep their eye out for that you're working on? I know you mentioned that you have a, a chapter in the forthcoming new edition of Centuries of Genocide. Is there anything else we should keep our eye out for? Um, sure. I am also um, working on a documentary about Argentina called A Thousand Mondays, um, which is currently in post-production. Um, and I lead the Truth in the Americas program at the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights. Um, and we're going to be launching some new initiatives related to truth, violence, and the public sphere um, this year. Um, and my forthcoming research that I'm developing um, is also going to be looking at the experience of post-Soviet Jews in the United States and on questions of the future of Holocaust memory. So um, those are all new projects that I'm developing um, that very much relate to this work in this book as well. Great. Thank you. And I'll definitely keep my eye out for that, especially the documentary for my own work with, uh, with my students for my classes. Uh, Natasha, thanks again. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And um, yeah, good luck with everything in the future and, and take care. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for having me.